All right, let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, for this chance for us to meet uh, and unpack some words, some, some, some of this letter that has, up to this point, the last number of weeks, made such a difference in the life of our church and in our hearts. Would you guide us this morning in this? Would you challenge us? Would you give us courage? And uh, would you show us your grace? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Seriously, though, can someone go next door and tell them to cut the music? I don't know if that's possible. That's just, I don't know, it's bugging me. Is it bugging anybody else? No? Because if it was country, I would just be going raging right now. I would be. You guys don't like my country jokes, do you? Some of you, you just, that really bothers you. It's about my country, how much I hate it. I don't know. Some, some of you, you hate that. So um, we're in this letter, a letter Paul wrote to the Thessalonians 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. Now, if, if, if it's difficult sometimes to understand some of these letters, um, there's a reason behind it. It was written 2,000 years ago, okay? Now, uh, there's so much that's going on between now and, and now and then. So much that is different. And so today, we're gonna, this, this message is three parts. First part, super boring background stuff. Second part, we're going to dig into eight verses and we're going to fly through it. Third part is a story. So hang in there for story time, okay? Because um, that's, that's how this is going to go, okay? So we're going to dive into the first part, which is super boring background stuff. And some of you think this is fun stuff. Some of you are like, get to the story. Um, but let's just go. Let's just jump into it. Because the, the difference for us, 2,000 years, obviously time is a huge difference. So when you open up the book of Thessalonians and you're reading it, um, there's some things that kind of separate you from the context in which it was written. Okay? So imagine writing an email to somebody, and then, and then 2,000 years, someone uncovers this email that you wrote to somebody, and they're trying to figure out words like binging Netflix, and what is Gmail, and all this stuff that you're just, you have to understand the context of, right? And so we have time is difficult. There's a time gap. There's a culture gap between us and the Thessalonians, right? Huge. There is uh, a language barrier, okay? So, so um, think about it like this. If someone comes up, if you overhear a conversation and someone's saying, that's a good dog, um, that could mean one of many things, right? If someone says, that's a good dog, it could mean that dog obeys you really well. It could mean that that dog's a good hunting dog. And it could also mean that dog tastes good in some cultures, right? And so, so there's the language gap, right, for us. Hopefully nobody in here has said it in that way. But there's a language gap. There's, there's also a customs gap, different customs of the time. There's a geographical gap. And then there's value systems that separate us from the people of Thessalonica. And so we need to understand what those value systems are in order for us to really understand what the letter is saying, what Paul is trying to say. And so this morning, there's two huge cultural pieces that we need to talk about before we jump into this next part of the letter. And this actually is helpful for us looking back and looking forward in the letter, okay? The first one is this, patron-client relationships. Patron-client relationships. Now, um, here's, uh, 
Well, let me just start with the last verse of last week. Last week, the last verse we read was this. May he strengthen your hearts. This is Paul's prayer. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. And and this was part of the prayer he was giving them, and he's going to continue that thought today. But what's happening behind the scenes for, for many of these people is they understand what a patron and a client are. Because in, in that society, there were haves and have-nots. And it's not like today where there's haves and have-nots, but for the most part, you feel like you have a shot. Uh, if you're on the lower end of society, if you're a lower end of economics, there may be a way for you to find your way to uh, another level. But in in this period of time, where you were born is where you stayed, good or bad, high society, low society. Where you were born, how you were born, where you were born was, was where you stayed the rest of your life. If you were born to a slave, you may be a slave the rest of your life. If you were born into aristocracy, chances were pretty good you stayed there too. And so there were patrons, and patrons were people who were the haves. They were the people who had influence. They were the people that had connections. And there were clients, people who didn't have connections. And so if you were uh, someone of a low standing, and you needed a business loan, or you needed a favor, or you needed somebody to act on your behalf, you would seek out a patron you would seek out somebody who had the ability to have a negotiation with somebody else um, who was a patron, okay? And, and sometimes if you were a patron, you wanted as many clients as you could have because clients brought you privilege. Clients brought, brought you um, a, a sense of worth and, and, and showed the world that many people depended on you. Does that make sense? Kind of a, a godfather relationship, so to speak, where this godfather would, would look out for his clients and, and do their work for them, but they would also show him loyalty. They would kiss the ring. Does that make sense? And so in this patron, this was the, the fundamental block unit of, of the societies. This is how, this is what you were encouraged to participate in this. If you were uh, someone who didn't have a lot of standing, you were encouraged to, to connect yourself with a couple of patrons so that they could negotiate things on behalf of you and, and they could uh, make life easier for you and, and you would in turn uh, show them f- uh, fidelity. You would show them favor. You would, you would drop what you were doing if they needed you. You would, you would talk them up. You would talk up your patron. Hey, I, I know this guy, right? And, 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 and he, here's what he's done for me, and you should, you should connect yourself with him too. And so there was just a lot of this back-scratching going on. Now, all the gifts from the patrons came with strings attached, right? So if you were a patron and you gave uh, away for a client to improve their life or their standing or their economics, it came with strings attached, and we talked about what that was. And, and that's just showing... Uh, honor and favor. Sometimes there was a, a, a certain loan attached to it. Sometimes patrons would work on behalf of clients ahead of time without them even asking. 
If you wanted somebody to show you favor and you were a patron, you would actually open a door that you think that they needed open, and then you would tell them about it. It's interesting society. We don't, we don't really work that way, but they did. And so we need to understand that. And Paul uses some of this language, although he never uses the word patron and client. He uses words like charis and pistis. Charis is the word for grace. And if you were a patron and you did something for a client, you would show them, you would give them grace. You would give them graces, charises. And if you were a client, in return, you would show your patron faith, which is the Greek word for, for faith is pistos. You would show them faith. And faith for us is this idea of believing in something we cannot see. But for Paul, faith is fidelity. Faith is allegiance to your patron, okay? I told you this would be boring, right? Um, And so it's allegiance to your patron. It's not a contract word. It's a covenant word, meaning that this grace was given, okay? These graces were given to the client, and the client would, in return, show fidelity, Show faith. Now, Paul uses language, a bunch of different languages to talk about what Jesus has done for us. He's talked about uh, different versions of that story through adoption. He uses the word adoption a lot. He uses legal language, okay, Um, and right standing before God, things like that. And he also uses uh, this kind of slavery marketplace language in redemption. But he, he talks a lot. Whenever you see grace and faith together, In Paul's writings, he's talking about this kind of unspoken reality that everybody lived under of a patron and a client, okay? And so you hear, you probably remember the, um, as uh, by grace you have been saved through faith, right? It has a very client-patron picture to it, okay? So uh, we, we look back, and these are, these are hard, concrete, cultural expectations. This is just how life worked for them, okay? Much like for us, freedom and consumerism is just the norm. We're just in it. It's just something we're used to. It's, we're used to capitalism and, and free speech and things like that. That's what they were used to, patron-client society. So once we understand the patron-client relationship, it seems like it's everywhere on the pages of Scripture. You can look at it. Like Matthew chapter 8, there's a, there's a story of a leper, and he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. That's the idea. You, you're the patron. I'm the client. You can make a way for me. I can't. Um, then there's the centurion. I don't know if you remember the story of the centurion. He's a, he's a Gentile, and he did not consider um, himself worthy to have Jesus come to him. So what does he do? He sends Jewish people who are his clients to Jesus. And they're responding. They're responding out of fidelity to this Roman centurion who's their patron. And they are, they are doing his bidding for him. And so even the term Christian that's only mentioned like three or four times in Scripture, it was a coined uh, uh, phrase. It's a coined uh, moniker for the people who used to follow this Christ as their patron. 
right? That Christians were following this Christ, and he was their patron. So that's the first thing we need to understand. The second thing we need to understand is this is a culture that's full of honor and shame. It's an honor and shame culture. And so the Thessalonians lived by this idea that um, what, what mattered, what was right and wrong, really had significance only in, in what the group said or how the group felt, okay, about your actions. Actions for us, we are a legal society. So there's a, there's a, there's a right and wrongness to our, our behaviors here um, and the formation of the individual in our culture is central. But for them, it was about the group. It wasn't about the individual. And so you had the ability to shame your group, shame your family, shame your, your, your constituency. And that's what you worried about the most. Okay, That's what brought you the most fear in your life. We internalize morality. They externalize morality. Okay? And so you could shame somebody, and, and the idea, the synonym in this culture were, where can I put my face? Where can I hide my face? And, and this idea is when, you, when, when someone was shamed for them, it was this idea of, of shaming the group was your biggest fear. It was the idea of ripping your face off as if to make yourself ugly, okay? And, and for us, maturity is doing right and wrong and developing a sense of right and wrong, and there's rules and laws, and those things kind of guide to my decisions. But for them, it's all about honor and shame. So those two things, I think, are really important as we dive into this. And we're done with the boring stuff now, okay? So um, you made it, and I'm so proud of you. And some of you are like, oh, it's better. Maybe. I don't know. So into 1 Thess- Thessalonians chapter 4 we go. Knowing these two things, knowing what it means to be a patron and a client just a little bit, and getting an idea for honor and shame, we're going to read the first two verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It goes like this. As for others, other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. Can you, can you hear the patron-client language? Okay. As in fact you are living, now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus, to do this more and more, more and more, okay? For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And so he's setting up. He talked about how to live blameless and holy lives. He's already talked about how they're doing a great job, but keep going, keep doing this more and more. And in verse 3, he gets into the the nitty-gritty. He says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. And that word sanctified is pretty powerful. It actually means to be set apart. It means to be set apart as for some sort of special divine purpose, okay? And then he he goes on that you should avoid sexual immorality. I told you it gets spicy. And uh, some of you were nervous about this today. But there's something happening here that we also need to understand. There is a huge double standard in this culture. In fact, if you were to take the Greek right out of this, um, the Greek here, these would be heavily directed statements towards the men of the church. Heavily directed towards the men of the church. Because in Greek culture, in this Thessalonica world that this letter is hitting, there's a double standard. 
And you might be going, well, yeah, there's a double standard now. And there is, but there, it was even worse then, okay, this double standard. See, women, married women, were expected to remain chaste to their husbands. That was what you did. The standard for them was a strict moral chastity. But for Roman men, there was quite a different expectation, okay? For married women, the expectation was for you to produce children. And that and all your husband owed you was that right. For Roman men, the double standard was men were allowed considerably more freedom to have sex with other women, particularly women deemed not to possess status or honor. So it was, it was okay if the person was somewhat of a client, if you will, someone who didn't have means. Now, this word sexual immorality, comes. the, the word for it is pornea, and it's where we get the word pornography in. It's, it's what Paul is uh, alluding to is it's anything illicit, illicit sexual behavior. So to avoid adultery, okay, sex with another man's spouse or in, in pagan and Greek text, pornea me- meant the sale of your body for prostitution. And, and, and it's this implicit idea that, that anything outside of this marriage belief, this marriage peace is what Paul's talking about. And in Christian and Jewish texts, it has a much wider use. It's any sexual activity outside of marriage. And it includes adultery, but it also includes um, another man's uh, adultery with another man's wife, but also sex with slaves and courtesans and prostitutes. Because in that day and age, in order to worship at the temple, a Roman man was given license to have sexual relationships with the temple prostitute. And his wife couldn't do anything about it. And imagine what that would be like, ladies. I mean, just imagine the, the, the double standard and the pain and all of that that brought. And, and I, we don't have to go very far in this room to have talk about real pain in this area. I mean, we don't. I mean, the stories that have been written are, they're, they're written and their pain, and their heart. And so Paul continues with this because he's getting to something that's really bringing light. He says that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Remember, he's, he's kind of leaning on the men on this one. He's leaning on the guys on this one. And he says, not in a passionate, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and it and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. And so this idea that Paul is, is kind of saying that within this community, within this fledgling community, and we've talked about how, how crazy this time was for them, that, that saying no to the worship of idols and gods and, and all this actually brought them such difficulty. And then you throw in this too, that that this community is supposed to be sacred, that there's a, there's a, a, there's a different ethic here at work here. There's a, 
There's a different honor-shame thing working here. And, and don't treat each other in here like people treat each other out there, is what he's saying. He's like, we got to shoot for something bigger. And, and there's a way for you to control your passionate lust. There's a way for you to control uh, your body in a way that's holy and honorable. And it's wrong to take advantage of a brother or sister. And then he goes on, he says, the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. And we, we, as we told you and warned you before, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Now, there's an attempt for us in our culture. Our culture is people of the present. We are live in a world that is very present-oriented. My present needs, my present desires, my present uh, wants, my, the things that I feel I'm entitled to, I am, much like the Roman men at that time felt like they were entitled to, I'm entitled to those fulfillments. I'm entitled to those things in my life that I think about I can have. Um, and, and the things available to us in our world right now, the outlets for whatever desire one might have are there. And the difference between living as people of the future and living as people of the present has everything to do with God, what God wants us to be. Because Paul says here at the beginning that God wants us to be blameless and holy. And, and he says, verse 1... If you want to look back, it says, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instruct you as how to live in order to please God, meaning like the central aim of our lives as clients to our patron is to live to please him, live in a, in a fidelity to God, that there's something beautiful and and freeing and fully alive about that. And that uh, people of the present don't understand that. And, and sometimes for some of us, we're confused and we go, but it seems like the people of the present are having a whole lot better life than the people of the future. And it does seem like that. Until you understand what happens. What happens is, in a place like Denver... There is this ability to not have to take your life too seriously. I mean, we have beauty all around us. We have activities all around us. We have anything we want. We worship what is next. We are next worshipers, right? We, what's next? What's the next thing on the horizon? What's the next film or activity or experience. We, we seek experiences and pleasures of, of some kind. We escape. We search for meanings. We, we search for transcendence. We search for fulfillment. And the most important thing about you isn't the fulfillment of those desires. According to this letter, the most important thing about them can be viewing our decisions, our desires, our wants, our hurts, our, our dreams in light of the future. That's the most important thing about us. 
And so when it comes to things like pornography and, and just this illicit, not hurting anybody, you know, thing, and I, I, I meet with guys and, and students all the time that, well, it's not really hurting anybody except for the fact that you're contributing to a culture of, of pornography that, that, that does serious damage all over the world. Just come tonight and see the documentary. Then there's this hurting of your spouse or your future spouse because you may not think you're hurting your future spouse or your spouse, but you're really wrecking that relationship. You're wrecking that intimacy. And then there's a killing of community because that begins this whole hiding thing. And we've talked about hiding in, in, in this church and in, in our lives. And what's the first sin in the garden? What do they do? They hide. They hide. And they can't be real. They can't be authentic because there's some secretness about them. And so that's why we got to take this seriously. That's why Paul is saying, here's the thing. I want you to lean into this more and more. I want you to be aggressive. I want you to be courageous about this. I want you to push into this. There's this idea in our culture that the most important thing about us is who we're attracted to. That that actually becomes the most defining thing about an individual is who they're attracted to. And Scripture just says that's not the most important thing about you. And then when you begin to make that your identity, what you're actually doing is giving your chance, yourself no chance to find ultimate fulfillment. Like the real fulfillment, the, the fulfillment that just comes from God alone and as, as your patron is, is throwing graces your way and you explain, and coming back in full circle and, and finding that joy in being pleasing to God. We so easily choose that which we can never be satisfied over, over the fulfillment and the power that comes from fidelity to our patron. See, the goal is for us to be sanctified, set apart, holy, blameless, out of faith. Augustine, uh, kind of an early church father, if you will, wrote, the past you was not able to, was not, able to not sin. The past you. The present you is able to not sin. It's just messy, right? The future you is not able to sin. It's not able to miss it. And so to be people of the future, what Paul is saying, you've got to lean in as a community. And in verse 8, he final, finishes it off. He says, therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being. Paul's like, you're not rejecting me. You're rejecting your patron." The very God who gives you the Holy Spirit, the very God who gives you this, this gift of himself in you to help you not go that route. Beautiful thing here before we um, invite Dan up to tell his story. I shared with this last week. In fact, Dan, why don't you come up while I'm sharing this? Um, Dan's going to share some of his story. I told you it was going to get way better, right? Because Dan's here. <laughs> And uh, some of you don't know, this is Dan Zizvorka, and if you want to start grabbing the mic and unraveling it, um, Dan's coming on our, our team, so he's our pastor of mission practice, and um, 
we we just love when Dan tells stories. And uh, this one's really his and and Kelly's, and and it's just really good and powerful and rich, and I really want us to hear it. And last week, I I shared with you this letter, a letter to Diognetus. This was a second century letter uh, of a a heathen guy who wrote about the Christians to his friend. He's he's telling his friend about how Christians live, okay? And I'm just going to read a few lines from this. It says, he says, they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, yet endure all things as if foreigners. They marry as do all. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. So I just want to let that hit you as Dan shares his story, and then, um, yeah, we'll go from there. Thanks, Dan. Um, If we could turn the house lights up all the way, that'd be great. And at any point, <clears throat> I'm just, I'm a, I'm a kind of person that likes dialogue. And so in my sharing with you here and in the future, at any point you want to raise your hand and ask a question, that's great with me. Um, I actually feel like it makes a, a dialogue between the community and the community starts talking to each other about these things. This is not an easy story because this is a very messy story. I wanted to talk about what Ryan's talking about this morning as far as sanctification and pleasing God and sexual immorality, but in terms of how that doesn't work itself out in really neat ways, it actually works itself out in pretty messy ways. And when we're involved, uh, it's not a straight line from becoming a Christian to uh, becoming a saint it's more like like this. It's all over the place. So I'll just jump into the story. Um, and it's a very personal story, but I feel like I'm giving myself to you as a church in my stories. And I hope you get the gospel from these stories. Back, uh, way back before Kelly and I were married, I was a youth, uh, youth uh, leader in the Presbyterian Church in San Diego. It was a very large youth group, and uh, I was one of the leaders. There were several leaders. Uh, Well, Kelly had become a new Christian and had recently come to the youth group, and Kelly and I uh, started becoming uh, involved with each other, became boyfriend and girlfriend. And uh, before we knew it, we were deeply involved in a sexual relationship with each other. And this is where it's a, a split thing because what I wanted in my life and my life for the future was sanctification. I wanted to be holy gods. I wanted to be set apart. I wanted to, that to rule my life. But what was happening at the same time was my own uh, nature and hormones and desires were ruling me at the same time. And it was a, it was a really difficult uh, time because it was just became and I was so ashamed uh, of being so weak in, in this 
that I isolated myself. I didn't tell anybody about it. And, uh, and just sat in that uh, cycle of guilt and shame and, and satisfaction, guilt and shame and satisfaction. Well, as things uh, progressed, uh, Kelly became pregnant. And we were forced to look at the situation uh, in the light rather than in the darkness. And one of the possibilities was for Kelly to get an abortion. And that was something that Kelly and I did not, uh, were not in accord with and not believe in. So we were not going to go that direction. Another possibility would be to run away, which is what I wanted to do with everything in me wanted to run away. And the third possibility was to go through it. So what happened was I told the, well, I started off by telling one of the youth leaders that Kelly was pregnant. And he was very surprised because I had isolated myself. I hadn't talked about it at all. And he was very surprised. And in the moment, he immediately fired me from the youth group. Now, we were on a retreat in the mountains. He fired me, and I took off walking, and uh, it was like going from L.A. to San Diego, and uh, I made my way home on my own. But uh, the next thing that happened was that I went before the youth council, and the youth council was all the youth leaders and some adult, other adults that were involved with the youth. We had a pretty good-sized group of maybe 100 youth, I think, uh, 50 to 100 youth, and there was a good-sized group of leaders. And the youth council decided that it would be best for me, well, first I confessed to them what had happened and what I was doing. And then they decided it would be best for me to go before the youth group, all the youth, like this right here, they're all sitting out there, and confess my sin before them because they needed to know I was right and wrong. And I was going to be the one to confess. But I love Jesus so much. It's so weird because these things happen to people who love Jesus. It's not clean. It's not. It's very messy. So I decided, I said, well, I will go before the youth group and I will confess my sin. And that was one of the hardest things I've ever done. I confessed before all these kids, high school kids with tears and trembling what had happened and what had done. And so then the church uh, disciplined me, took me out of leadership. I had had a call from God before that. I thought my call was completely ripped away from me. And I was deeply ashamed. Well, Kelly and I decided to get married and to go that direction. So we planned our wedding really quickly <laughs> and sent out 20 invitations to people we thought might come because uh, of the situation. And uh, so we got ready and we had the wedding at the church in the church building. And I walked in to the church building 
when we were getting married, I walked in. And there were, and there was everybody from the church at the wedding. There were over 500 people at the wedding. That was good in the sense of what a show of grace. But it was also hard on me because I was so ashamed. So I was ashamed in front of 500 people who knew what was going on, who knew I confessed to the youth group. Uh, and the more I've gone along in my history, the more that has meant to me. In the moment, it was very, very hard for me even to look up at my own wedding. And, uh, but now I, I really appreciate that show of grace. Another thing that happened after that was we were invited by six couples from the church to move into onto a cul-de-sac and live next door to each other in a small Christian community. And that actually was deeply important to us because it showed support by the church to us uh, because we had a really hard road coming. It was not an easy thing. You don't just confess your sin and get forgiven and everything's la-la land after that. No, it's a very, very long road to move through guilt and shame. But sanctification is like that. And so when Paul says, don't go there, He's saying, don't split yourself in half. I was split in half. I wanted to follow Jesus, but I was going this direction at the same time. It was tearing me apart. But sanctification is trying to eventually bring yourself to be one person, one person of the future. The things that were important from that was that confession became a really important part of my life. In fact, one of the results of that was I confessed before the, uh, all the youth group and the youth leaders. What actually happened after that was several of the youth, other youth leaders came and used me as a confessor. I was the one that went through the whole thing, and I think it was good for me. But what happened was that actually most of the youth leaders were involved in sexual sin had had uh, sexual sin, had uh, had abortions, had had things that were very complicated in this in their lives, and yet they were still isolated and alone. But they came to me and started confessing these things to me. Um, in the long run, I don't think it served them well. I've known many of them for many years, and they've had many uh, negative outcomes from being isolated in their sin. Not that I haven't had my struggles. I have had very much an up and down life. Uh, but confession is one of those things that brings us, if we trust somebody, confessing to them brings us to a place of being able to maybe move beyond our tra trap of individualness. The other thing that was important was community shows grace. Our patron is Jesus, but we are the people of Jesus. And so when the church showed grace, that was what was transforming to me, both in the sense of grace at our wedding and grace in supporting us and in the community. So if you, uh, I feel like my task this morning is to connect this with us today. If you feel trapped or isolated, in some of this sin, um, 
Find somebody you respect, somebody you trust, and take a risk and confess or share your messy life with them. And as, as a church, I think uh, the other point that I'd like to make is, as a church, humility invites humility. Power humiliates, but humility invites humility. And if we want people to come and be uh, vulnerable in this church, then we need to be humble people ourselves. And if we are humble and others will be, feel free to humble themselves with us. As it says, uh, there's a couple things that uh, says in the book of James. One is confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And the other thing James says uh, in that same letter is mercy triumphs over judgment. That's what it means to be a people of the future. Not to ignore sin, but to allow mercy to triumph over judgment. Let's uh, close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the road you've walked with me. And I know that you're walking with my brothers and sisters here this morning. Give us the courage to continue that walk to the end even though it's messy and it's hard and we're tempted every day to be split in half. Thank you that your mercy is stronger and greater than your judgment, but we need your judgment to know your mercy. So I pray for anyone here that needs mercy. I pray for them to have the courage confess, to seek you, and to find it. We ask all of this, Jesus, in your name.